Aya. I've already covered some of the preliminary voyages of Roald Amundsen in past episodes, but given the length of time since then, a quick recap is in order. Youngest of four sons of a doctor, Roald was sent to medical school by his mother, determined that one of her children should follow in their father's footsteps. It was also Roald's mother who nixed young Roald's attempt to join Nansen's Arctic drift aboard the Fram. Roald never really took an interest in his medical studies, and his mother's death left him both free to follow his ambitions and enough money to expand his childhood adventures with his brother Leon into a career of full-scale exploring. When Roald Amundsen sailed as first mate aboard the Belgica under Gerlache, he found himself circumvented in the Belgian chain of command and disappointed by the planning and execution of the expedition. He formed a fast friendship with Dr. Frederick Cook, and between them their efforts helped the Belgica's crew survive the Antarctic winter, keeping up the supply of fresh meat that staved off scurvy and buoying morale during the long, dark months. It was also on this expedition that Amundsen tried and swore off for life the physically ruinous practice of man-hauling sledges. To quote the man, Man-hauling was vividly shown to be neither glorious nor heroic, but unpleasant, sweaty, toilsome and stupid. Cop that, ghost of Sir Clements Markham. Amundsen's childhood reading of Arctic exploration accounts, reinforced by his experiences aboard the Belgica, convinced him that to succeed in exploration, he needed to be both the leader and in command of any vessel involved in the voyage. I've mentioned previously that equal footing, or perceived equal footing, that splits leadership between two or more strong personalities can be catastrophic in challenging circumstances. The history of Arctic exploration features several instances wherein such split leadership led to misery and death. The most striking that comes to my mind is that of the Polaris. Charles Francis Hall, a blacksmith and newspaper publisher, took part in three forays above the Arctic Circle, seeking to learn the fate of those aboard the Erebus and Terror, last seen heading off to seek the Northwest Passage under Sir John Franklin. For Hall's third voyage north, his ship, the Polaris, on loan from the US Navy, sailed under the command of Sidney O. Buddington. Buddington and Hall didn't get along, and crew loyalties divided between them. Carried north as expedition scientist, the charismatic German, Dr. Emil Bessel, sowed further seeds of discord among the crew and stands as my number one suspect regarding the arsenic poisoning that killed Charles Francis Hall while the Polaris weathered the northern winter in the fast ice. Leadership fell to Buddington, but by this point in his life he was pretty much a soak, and the already strongly factional crew further divided against itself. The ice crushed the ship, and the crew came as close to cannibalism as it's possible to come without actually putting anyone in the pot. Everyone but Hall ended up surviving, but it was a near-run thing. Sometimes, a strong and prickly leader is better than a nice but weak one. Charles Francis Hall, by trying to be everyone's friend, ended up friendless and dead 
and his crew divided against itself in a situation where a clearly defined command structure and decisive leadership were of the essence, and where being well-liked didn't actually count for much. With such tales of divided crews in mind, Roald Amundsen set about completing his captaincy exams so any subsequent expedition he led would also sail under his command, as was the case in the transit of the Gyoa through the Northwest Passage. Not everything in that expedition ran smoothly, but by taking the reins in such a definitive manner, Amundsen removed one source of friction by which many past expeditions failed. The success that the Goa Transit experienced was applauded by exploration appreciators worldwide, but didn't yield much in financial terms, largely because the telegram Amundsen sent his brother Leon announcing their successful first voyage through the Northwest Passage had to stage through Seattle, where an unscrupulous telegraphist sold the news to local reporters, nixing Amundsen's ability to sell the news as an exclusive. This hard-won lesson informed all of Amundsen's future interactions with newspapers, all correspondence between his expeditions and their representatives at home being sent using pre-arranged codes. Secretary to the Royal Geographic Society, Scott Kelty, encouraged Amundsen to capitalise on his Kiowa voyage through lecturing, articles and a book about the expedition. The big-ticket exclusives might already be lost, but there was money to be made in the lucrative, though often gruelling world, of syndicated publication and lecture halls. While I'm a sucker for going to a lecture on a topic of interest, in this content-saturated era we live in, it's perhaps hard to imagine that a person could tour the world and stay in flash hotels simply on the basis of a good yarn. With television still a while away and radio a rare and wondrous mystery during the period under discussion, lecturing offered useful financial opportunities. Kelty felt that bringing the Gower to the Thames would generate a lot of public interest Amundsen could then capitalise on, having fully circumnavigated the Americas. But this never eventuated. The Gyoa staying on in San Francisco until the 1970s, while Amundsen turned his attention northward once more, aiming for the North Pole. Following another personal maxim deriving from the Gyoa expedition, Amundsen sought to make his new foray financially independent. His exploration credibility made sourcing funds more straightforward than before but he didn't want any contributions to come with onerous commitments. Donations were fine, but he was wary of sponsorships and the power they gave the sponsor over the exploits they helped fund. Scott Kelty wrote to Rold's brother Leon Amundsen, acting as manager of the new expedition, encouraging him to negotiate exclusive publishing deals with British newspapers, particularly The Times as he felt it likely to serve the Norwegians' financial needs best should the North Pole be reached. In 1907, Amundsen approached Fritjof Nansen to ask the great Norwegian a big favour. Besides the magnitude of the favour, Nansen's social rank, several Norwegian tiers above that of Amundsen, made the asking all the more daunting, but ask he did, and, after consideration, Nansen agreed that Norway specifically, and science generally, 
would be best served by his loaning Amundsen the Fram for his expedition to finish the Arctic drift to the North Pole Nansen attempted in the 1890s. This in spite of Nansen's ambition to make an attempt on the South Pole. Man of honour and duty, what? Amundsen began touring the USA to... Amundsen began touring the USA to accumulate funds, the lecturing at first not coming naturally to him, and his less than fluent grasp of English cramping his oratory style. But the money came in, and he gradually settled into a groove with the work, never relishing it, but recognising it as part of the explorer's deal, and gradually growing more competent and confident with English through practice. Amundsen also made a visit to Britain, to seek the endorsement of the Royal Geographic Society. The RGS weren't thrilled at the idea of a Norwegian reaching such a prestigious geographical goal as the North Pole first, and the committee grilled Amundsen about his ambitions, citing the wasted resources and lives already spent in simply trying to reach a new furthest north as an argument against yet another purely pole-oriented gambit. Shower of hypocrites that they were. Amundsen talked up the oceanographic aspects of his proposed expedition, stating that he should take on the job of finishing the measurements kicked off on board the Fram under Nansen in the mid-1890s, eventually garnering a consensus sentiment among the RGS luminaries that they should be more content that a Norwegian reached the North Pole first than an American. The nod that Amundsen sought eventually came his way. After Amundsen earned this official recognition for the project, King Harkon and Queen Maud made a contribution to the expedition coffers. With US financial backing secured and British knobby nods given in the form of the approval of the RGS, the Norwegian Parliament begrudgingly threw funds sufficient to refit the Fram into the pot in February 1909. Among the modifications made to the Fram on the government dollar, the most significant was the addition of a diesel engine. More fuel efficient than a steam engine, and less catastrophically flammable than the petrol engine that nearly burnt the Gjoa to the waterline, the diesel engine, one of the first ever fitted to an ocean-going ship, also promised more horsepower per unit weight than other auxiliary propulsion systems of the day could offer. Amundsen considered taking radio equipment aboard, another new development making inroads into maritime operations. He decided not to invest in the technology, but not because of the weight and complexity of the equipment, or because of qualms about the reliability of the system. Amundsen sailed without radio because of his concerns that contact with the world outside of his ship might negatively impact his leadership. After working hard to become both the expedition leader and the master of his vessel, he didn't want external information or instructions intruding. Even with all the goodwill and funding, Amundsen still needed to mortgage his home to ensure he held the financial reins of the expedition. September 1909 gave Amundsen a lot to think about. Dr Frederick Cook, Amundsen's former Antarctic shipmate aboard the Belgica, announced he reached the North Pole in April of the previous year, and Robert Peary announced he reached the North Pole in April 1909. Subsequent doubt thrown on both claimants' claims, being made subsequently, 
couldn't diminish the excitement the competing Americans' assertions caused worldwide, and the North Pole was completely shot as a destination likely to bring Amundsen any acclaim or money. Scott Kelty wrote to Leon again, lamenting that reaching the North Pole couldn't be expected to garner much in the way of rewards after Cook and Peary's claims on it. In light of those claims, existing promises of free equipment and vittles for Amundsen's expedition were rescinded, and donations for the Northern Expedition slowed to a trickle. Never letting on to Nansen, his donors, or his crew, Amundsen began making plans to head south to make an attempt on the South Pole. Then, Scott announced his intentions to return to Antarctica. Amundsen's resolve to keep his southern ambition secret redoubled, as he felt letting Scott know they were now engaged in an unofficial race might offer the British expedition extra impetus to make their trek from the Antarctic coast towards the Pole in their first summer season on the ice. As recounted in episode 35, Amundsen pretended not to be at home when Scott came calling to give him brand new scientific instruments and to arrange for coordinated measurement series at the opposite ends of the Earth. So eager was Amundsen not to have to face a man he knew to be smart and honourable, and therefore likely to be alert to and disapproving of any hint that Amundsen was being disingenuous with him. Shifty Norwegian is shifty. An additional impetus to keep quiet about the new plan was the treatment his Belgica shipmate, Henrik Arktowski, received when, in 1907, he announced his plans to return to Antarctica to the Royal Geographical Society. The RGS weren't impressed with Shackleton tramping on Scott's turf, let alone a foreigner, so in addition to being gazumped by Shackleton's ad hoc announcement of what became the Nimrod voyage at the dinner at which Arktowski announced his expedition plans, Henrik made few friends and received no backing for his temerity. Bloody foreigner? What? Britain's support for the Norwegian succession from Sweden just five years prior, and Nansen's role in that dissolution and subsequent posting to Britain as the first Norwegian ambassador, made it an inopportune time for Amundsen's Norwegian expedition to appear to tread on British toes in the far south. Amundsen selected a Norwegian naval lieutenant, Torvald Nilsen, to serve as first mate aboard the Fram and to take command when Amundsen led the shore party. The first mate was to have been another officer from the Norwegian Navy, Captain Ole Engelstad. But in testing a kite design Amundsen wanted to employ in sledge hauling, predating modern kite skiing combinations employed in Antarctica by a good 80 years, the 33-year-old Ole was struck by lightning and killed. Christian Prestrud, another Norwegian naval officer, signed on to the expedition as scientific coordinator. Two companions from Amundsen's time on the Gjoa agreed to join the crew of the Fram. Helmar Hansen could navigate both at sea and on the ice, having worked as a seal hunter north of Spitsbergen, and he learnt to drive dog teams efficiently from the Inuit during his time aboard the Gjoa. Adolf Landstrom was an excellent shipboard cook, and his temperate nature served him and the crews he cooked for well in the many northern winters he spent aboard the Gjoa and aboard the Fram under Otto Sverdrup, one of Fridtjof Nansen's colleagues and shipmates from the Fram's first voyage, before that. 
having returned to Norway from the Goa expedition by ship, where Amundsen cut across North America on his press and lecture tour. Landstrom is noted in maritime annals for being the first person to sail around the entire coast of the Americas. Olav Bjarland was a champion long-distance skier from Telemark in northern Norway. Bjarland accepted the invitation with enthusiasm, seeing the pole as the finish line of a particularly gruelling ski race, which it actually turned out to be. Amundsen tried to convince former Fram crewman Sver Hassel to join the expedition in care of the Greenland docks that Amundsen felt confident would prove their attempt on the South Pole successful. Hassel, who sailed aboard the Fram under both Nansen and in the subsequent voyage under Otto Sverdrup, was initially reluctant to leave his post in the customs service. Hassel eventually agreed to look after the dogs as far as the San Francisco staging point on the journey north. Of course, the Fram was not heading north and would not stage through San Francisco, but Hassel didn't know that and Amundsen didn't let on. Hassel never publicly complained that he was railroaded into the Antarctic voyage, but that's pretty much what happened. Carpenter Jürgen Stubberud renovated Amundsen's house and did such a good job that Amundsen invited him on the expedition. Artilleryman Oscar Wisting took leave from the Norwegian army to join the expedition. His position, arising due to his demonstrated level-headedness in challenging circumstances, and his extensive experience working in extreme cold environments. The one expedition member Amundsen did not pick himself was Fritjof Nansen's sole companion of a year and a half above the Arctic Circle, Hjalmar Johansen. After their long trek, preceded by their long drift together aboard the Fram, Johansen's military career flagged and his marriage failed these problems largely being ascribed to heavy drinking and depression arising in the wake of his experiences in the North. Nansen felt that enforced abstinence from alcohol on the expedition would do Johansen a lot of good, and that he had much to offer Amundsen in his skiing and dog handling expertise. In spite of his efforts to retain complete control over every aspect of the expedition, Amundsen couldn't refuse Nansen's request, what with him being Norway's favourite son, and in charge of the ship he'd just borrowed. No dedicated photographer or camera artiste shipped with the Fram, but Norwegian photographer Anders Beers Vils provided photographic equipment and training in its use for the expeditioners. Amundsen invited Dr. Harry Edmonds, an American medical doctor and a veteran of an Arctic expedition in which he took magnetic observations and Edmonds agreed to join the expedition north. Based on Edmonds' presence in the team, the Department of Research in Terrestrial Magnetism at the Carnegie Institute agreed to employ the young doctor for six months to help assemble the best possible array of magnetic instruments and to ensure they would be employed to their best effect. Amundsen hadn't taken a doctor on the Gyoa voyage, Figuring a highly educated man among an otherwise loyal crew might prove the seed of discontent he couldn't afford to sow. In preparing for his attempt on the South Pole, he deemed the size of the expedition and the nature of the proposed foray warranted medical expertise on hand. 
This, though, is one of the points in the preparations where Amundsen's secrecy bit him in the arse. Because Edmonds wasn't informed about the actual goal of the expedition, he didn't understand Amundsen's repeated and increasingly strident requests that he join the farm in Christiania. New magnetic measurements around Cape Horn offered no great scientific advantage to anyone, so Edmonds would stay put and join the ship in San Francisco. And thus it was that the Norwegian expedition headed to Antarctica with no doctor, no magnetician, and no magnetic instruments. Originally slated to depart in February 1910, the expedition never got underway until the 7th of June, departing Christiania with 19 men and 97 Greenland dogs. This timing suited a southern summer expedition, but not so much a northern one. Any suspicion anyone might have entertained regarding Amundsen's ambitions due to this timing could have been partly assuaged by the long transit the Fram faced. In the days before the Panama Canal opened to shipping traffic, the fastest way to reach the Bering Strait, the proposed launching point for the Fram's nominal second drift-based attempt on the North Pole, from Europe, was to go around both of the Americas via Cape Horn. Additional time in hand would no doubt serve the expedition well, as they worked up the dog teams and bided their time, waiting for the right moment to make their foray in among the Arctic ice flows. The dogs, though, were harder to explain away. Why did Amundsen require dogs be sent to join his ship in Norway, when excellent sled dogs might be picked up in Alaska, saving a great deal of dog food and reprieving the dogs themselves from a long sea voyage and two very uncomfortable transits through the tropics. Another tell indicating a southern rather than a northern expedition was Stubberud's fabrication and erection of a prefabricated hut on Amundsen's property. Such a structure could be of no use in the proposed Arctic drift, as the ship itself would form their winter quarters, and a far more weatherproof one than a pop-up hut. Some of the crew asked questions about these perplexing aspects of the preparations, and were given Trump-grade obfuscations in reply. Helmar Hansen's question regarding the hut received an explanation that it was to act as an observatory, which just leads back to the question, why do you need that hut if you've got a ship to hand? Shackleton may have sniffed something awry when Armiton's correspondence turned from the matter of the clothing with which he fitted out his Nimrod crew to what brand of hypsometers he took south. Used to make an approximate measure of height above sea level by contrasting the boiling temperature of water at a particular location with that at sea level, a hypsometer could be of no use in a journey taking place, by definition, at sea level. But if Shackleton twigged, he kept it quiet. Amundsen took the Fram to sea for a shakedown cruise on the 7th of June, the fifth anniversary of Norwegian independence, and an opportunity for Leon to play the public relations game, trying to tie the expedition as closely as possible to the newly minted sense of national identity. The shakedown trip took the ship from Bergen to Scotland and back, and everything and everyone appeared to be in place and good to go. The night before they sailed, Amundsen took his officers, Nilsen, Gjertsen and Prestrud, aside 
and revealed his plan to head south instead of north. En route to Madeira, Amundsen penned his apology letters to Nansen and to King Harkon VII, trying to justify his subterfuge to those likely to be most surprised and piqued by it. A task he found onerous but necessary, because even scoundrels have standards. To Nansen he wrote, There have been many times I have almost confided this secret to you, but then turned away, afraid that you would stop me. I have often wished that Scott could have known my decision, so that it did not look like I tried to get ahead of him without his knowledge. But I have been afraid that any public announcement would stop me. Once more, I beg you, do not judge me too harshly. I am no hypocrite, but rather was forced by distress to make this decision. And so, I ask you to forgive me for what I have done. May my future work make amends for it. Amundsen went on to try to assure Nansen that the South Pole was a temporary diversion for the Fram, and that the Northern work would go ahead, as previously discussed, once that bothersome South Pole was put in its place. During their time at Madeira, Leon joined the ship briefly, having sailed via steamer after the standard late departure to allow more time to seek further funds, and Rold dismissed one crew member who clearly wasn't getting along with their crewmates. On September 9th, 1910, after three days in Madeira, taking on water, victuals, and effecting repairs, Amundsen called his crew together on the deck of the Fram and announced their actual destination and goal, causing varying degrees of surprise. Amundsen offered to pay the passage home for anyone who didn't want to continue and then asked each man if he would rather stay on or return to Norway. Everyone committed themselves to the south, bar Amundsen's brother Leon, who departed for Norway to carry on in his role as expedition manager. Leon took ashore all mail and instructions to send Amundsen's telegram, recounted in episode 35, to Scott after the Fram was out of reach of any recall. At this critical point in the expedition, the benefit of operating without Marconi's great invention came to the fore. Without telecommunications, not even the great Nansen could recall his protégé. I've never fully understood Amundsen's telegram to Scott, and am therefore in the realm of speculation when I ask, if Amundsen didn't want Scott to know he was heading south during the preparations, why give the game away at a stage when the information might yet lead to the outcome he wanted to avoid? That being Scott feeling the spurs and making a bolt for the pole during his first summer on the ice. We know with hindsight that it didn't happen, and I think Amundsen must have felt it unlikely at this late stage in proceedings, and balanced this against wanting the world to perceive him as honourable. News of Amundsen's change of plan, and the hindsight clarity with which his friends and detractors now viewed the obvious signs that the Antarctic stood as the expedition goal, caused consternation in some quarters, and anger in others. Leon Amundsen, trying, with Shackleton's assistance, to secure a publishing deal in England, received much opprobrium from Sir Clements Markham. Ha! You thought you'd heard the last of him, and his cohorts. 
Leon described Markham as a jabbering idiot, thereby endearing himself to me immensely. Leonard Darwin, then President of the Royal Geographical Society, son of Charles Darwin and noted eugenics advocate, didn't much care for Markham's prejudices and, true to the spirit of eugenics, stated, May the best man win. Leon eventually arranged a £2,000 deal with the Daily Chronicle and headed home. During the Fram's sea voyage, the alliances and enmities among the dogs were noted and the kenneling arranged to promote the least tension. The sledge teams would eventually arise to reflect the kennel arrangements, with dogs that got along well together working together in the traces. In mid-January 1911, the Fram entered the ice fields of the Ross Sea. The warming summer month since the Discovery's trials getting into McMurdo Sound through the pack made a big difference and the Norwegians spent only three days among the floes. Knowing that the Bay of Wales placed the Norwegians at least 30 nautical miles closer to the Pole than the most advantageous landing sites McMurdo Sound might offer, Amundsen set aside Shackleton's reservations about the stability of the area and put ashore on January the 14th, 1911. The men set to work establishing their winter quarters a mile and a half from the barrier edge. Sixteen tents formed the first stage of the new development, mostly serving as stores huts and dog shelters until more permanent arrangements could be established. Jorgen Stubberud began re-erecting the hut that caused consternation when he first tested its fit in Amundsen's grounds, setting the wooden jigsaw puzzle together in a dell dug into the neve so as to offer some insulation and to dodge the worst of the wind, and then water and windproofed its walls and roof with tar. Five dog teams passed from the ship to the camp all day for three weeks, shifting around ten tons of stores and equipment a day, and giving everyone ample opportunity to learn or hone dog driving skills. Crew members also set to work killing seals and penguins sufficient to see the shore party right for vitamin C rich meat through the winter months. Industrious spade work developed a warren of ice tunnels and rooms expanding the expedition working spaces beneath the barrier snow cap. Landstrom erected a Stevenson screen near the hut to house the meteorological instruments. As the contents of the tents were gradually sequestered in the hut and the ice grottoes, the tents became shelters for the dogs, by then totalling 116, after several litters of pups swelled their numbers. The snow beneath each tent was dug out to give the animals some more room and some respite from the hoarfrost that plagued them when sleeping on the barrier surface. Each tent housed around a dozen dogs, and each member of the crew held responsibility for a tent. A tunnel in the snow connected the dog accommodations to the latrine. Besides offering a space in which to run the dogs during inclement weather, this allowed the dogs to scavenge the humans' shit. This seems disgusting to most of us, but it's natural, human wastes being part of the story of the domestication of dogs. Amundsen saw it as a curiosity and, clearly being of benefit to the dogs, something he shouldn't fight. Contrast this pragmatism 
with Scott's queasy inability to mercy kill a suffering animal, even when to do so would serve his human companions best, and I think you see the single starkest delineation of the different temperaments at play in these two men. All up, the Norwegian efforts made for a sturdy, well-stocked, cosy little village under the snow, which the locals named Framheim, the home of Fram. On February the 4th, the discovery entered the Bay of Wales. The British visit to Framheim was recounted briefly in episode 37, and in more detail in episode 39, so I'll take it as read that you remember what transpired, though one extra detail arising from the British visit is worth noting at this point. Lieutenant Victor Campbell agreed with Shackleton's assessment of the Bay of Wales, that being that the ice beneath them was afloat and not aground. Occasional crew reports of a sense of movement in their alleged terra firma were recorded in the expedition log, but Amundsen played these down, because who wants a whole bunch of people cramping your ambitions in a bid to find somewhere safe to spend the year? Fuck that. Because the Bay of Wales constituted the closest the ship could land them to the Pole, and lay far enough from Scott to preclude any niggling British deputation entreating that they should fuck off of Scott's prerogative, meant that the Bay of Wales must, therefore, lie over solid ground, and therefore stood no chance of drifting off to sea and everyone's doom. Simple logic, if you're a fan of motivated reasoning. The Fram departed for Buenos Aires on the 11th of February. Several of the crew crestfallen by their exclusion from the shore party, but promised extra pay to help allay their disappointment. While in Buenos Aires, the Norwegian expat, Peter Christofferson, would bunker and vittle and refit the ship as his contribution to the boost in national pride he anticipated Norway would experience in the wake of a successful expedition. From there, the Fram began oceanographic surveys between South America and Africa through the southern winter. With the Fram gone, Amundsen, Landstrom, Hansen, Hassel, Johansen, Bjarland, Prestrud, Visting and Stubberud faced a year living on the barrier. In a rare blot on Amundsen's record for meticulous preparation, the 1912 Almanac was missing from their tiny settlement. The annual nautical almanacs were the only source of all the astronomical information necessary to navigate effectively in the era, and the reason printing them constituted a viable business model was that the calculations required to generate the data were complex and tedious, so while you could theoretically generate the 1912 edition from the 1911 edition, few people had the mathematical know-how or the computing power necessary to do so. With only the 1911 edition to work from, the expedition would need to get all their important navigating done by the end of the year. Everyone other than Landstrom took part in three depot-laying forays from Framheim, carrying a tonne and a half of stores to sites at 80, 81 and 82 degrees south on the barrier. On the first of these, concerned that navigating back to Framheim in poor light might prove difficult, Amundsen began laying a trail of dried fish, pressing one into the snow behind the last of the three sledges every quarter mile. The idea being that the hungry dogs could smell their way home. Besides a snow can at the depot itself, 20 black flags planted in a line perpendicular to the sledge track and extending five miles to either side 
marked the cache. The numbered flags could inform anyone coming across them in poor visibility how to find the depot and thereby get back on the previously trod and theoretically safe route. The depot laying work exhausted the men and saw eight dogs dead from their exertions and exposure. Almost everyone experienced frost damage to hands and face, but the supplies on the barrier placed the party in good stead for their shot at the pole the following summer. Weaknesses and inefficiencies revealed in the equipment during the depot journeys informed alterations and reinventions that occupied the men for much of the winter. Amundsen couldn't take part in the third and final depot journey due to hemorrhoids. Watch this space. For Framheim, lying at latitude 78 degrees, 30 minutes south, the sun set for the last time in the 1911 winter on the 21st of April, and the Norwegians hunkered down for a slightly longer than usual, but by no means as unfamiliar as it seemed to the British, season of darkness. Amundsen instituted a strict work schedule to help keep people focused. Six days a week, they were up at 7.30, on task at 9, taking lunch from midday to 2 in the afternoon, and then working again until quarter past 5. The labyrinth of tunnels and grottos the Norwegians made offered plenty of space for people to spread out and attend to their work. Prestrud made the scientific observations assisted by Johansen. Hassel ensured the coal and oil supplies were allotted to the right place at the right time and in the correct quantity to keep the stoves, lanterns and heaters going. Johansen parceled out the food bags, measuring out the precise quantities of biscuits, pemmican and dried peas Amundsen calculated as necessary for each stage in the summer sledging. Bjarland and Stubberuth working in the large and well-fitted-out workshop grotto, managed to cut almost a third of the total kilograms of sledge weight by planing the components of the sledges and the sledge boxes down to the minimum thicknesses necessary for the journey ahead, resulting in the absolute best compromise designs to balance strength and durability against weight and drag. Another innovation used by the Norwegians, a system of canisters lashed permanently to the sledge frame, allowed quick and easy stowage and unloading of only the articles needed in the moment, where the British approach required a lengthy sequence of lashing or unlashing gear from the sledge, a system in which a great deal of equipment might have to be moved in order to get at articles buried the deepest in the load. While the British approach offered easier options to lighten a sledge that fell in a crevasse, the Norwegian method saved a lot of time and energy at each camp or can break and in the harsh conditions experienced on the barrier and the polar plateau, any time outdoors came at a substantial energy cost. Bjarland also applied his specialist knowledge to making two pairs of skis to best suit the feet and build of each sledger. Amundsen required these be long, around three metres, to span small crevasses, and strong enough to hold the user's weight when only supported at the ends, should a snow bridge collapse beneath them. Again, Bjarland shaved weight where he could without sacrificing the load-distributing properties of the equipment entrusted to him. Fisting spent the winter at a treadle sewing machine, manufacturing improved tents by combining two of the two-person units into larger tents to sleep five, again saving weight without sacrificing durability. 
His needlework also modified the Inuit-style reindeer clothing the sledges would wear, improving fit and practicality. Bjarland and Hassel made a sauna, or a steam bath if you want to get technical about your sweat box nomenclature, and it proved the popular addition to Framheim, with most residents taking their turn of a Saturday evening. Amundsen instituted a competition. Estimate the temperature, win a cigar. Everyone's daily estimates went down in the logbook, and the crew member with the best estimate record at the end of each month won some smokables or analogous luxuries. More than just a diversion, this was Amundsen's attempt to guard against a failure in, or damage to, the meteorological thermometer. Scientific studies won't accept estimated measurements of this kind. That's why measuring instruments exist. But knowing the temperature plays an important role in outdoor operations in Antarctica. Should anything underwater happen to the meteorological rig in the Stevenson screen, Amundsen wanted some yardstick of temperature he could factor into his sledging preparations and plans. I can't divine who the task fell to, but some lucky punter spent time soldering tins of paraffin closed. Amundsen, alert to the problem of O-rings failing under extreme cold conditions, and paraffin creeping its way out past the threaded lid after his experiences aboard the Gyo, chose this approach to keeping the life-sustaining stove fuel where it needed to be, and it worked a charm. An unused can of paraffin came to light in 2011, when Henry Worsley, a British Army hardcase, and possibly, though not as yet substantiatedly, a distant relative of Frank Worsley, of whom more anon, unearthed, or unsnowed, one of Amundsen's caches while retracing the Norwegian's sledge journey. A hundred years on since the depot was laid, the paraffin can remained full, where Scott's equivalent vessels bled more of their precious, volatile contents to the atmosphere in the months they spent on the barrier than was good for the people depending on them for their food, fluids and warmth. Still, I don't envy anyone the job of working a soldering iron and its attendant brazier near tins of flammable liquids in a poorly ventilated workspace. Lundström spent his time at the stove, preparing hot and wholesome food, as you would expect in a Norwegian galley, drawing heavily on the locally sourced meats for as long as the supplies laid in on arrival lasted, switching to the tinned meats brought south as the seal and penguin cache dwindled. Coffee was always on the brew and kept the crew hydrated and warm. I like the idea of living this caffeine fueled industrious troglodyte existence, at least certainly far more than any Antarctic winter over experience recounted to date. Framheim operated dry, the only alcohol being a brandy on Saturday evening and some aquavit on Sunday, these being carefully rationed and stowed by Amundsen. Everyone took their turn in the rostered duties keeping Framheim clean, and personal accounts give an impression of life equivalent to that aboard a ship, self-contained and orderly. In the evenings, everyone would gather together and lively conversation arose after a day working in isolation. Darts, cards, reading and needlework sufficed to beguile the time. The small stock of gramophone recordings meant music was kept as a rare treat to avoid repetition dulling the pleasure the records brought. On the 24th of August, the sun returned. 
Sledges were packed, ready to go at the first sign of clement weather. The men and their dogs daily prepared for their emergence from their winter quarters cocoon, and for two weeks the departure was daily cancelled due to poor weather. Both the people and the dogs grew fractious, and Amundsen, worrying about the British expedition, and particularly about their motorised sledges, fretted at each new delay. On the 8th of September, after three days of temperatures in the high negative 30s Celsius, the eight men, Landstrom stayed at Framheim to keep the home fires burning and to carry on with meteorological observations, and 86 dogs headed south across the barrier, covering 31 miles in three days and feeling pretty spiffy about their efforts. The fourth day they awoke to temperatures in the low negative 50s Celsius and dense fog and things deteriorated from there, the temperature dropping so low in the subsequent day that the fluid in their compasses froze. Amundsen decided that at the first sign of an improvement in the weather, they should dash for the 80 degree south depot and cache the bulk of their supplies before returning to Framheim. At the depot, two dogs died of hypothermia, and Hansen, Prestrud and Stobberud found their heels frostbitten. They made a 7am start, with a dark sky to the south presaging a storm. Heading back to Framheim with unladen dog teams, Amundsen allowed the sledges to part company. Travelling with Visting's team and in company with Hansen's, Amundsen was soon lost to Stubberud's sight. Stubberud waited for Bjarland and their teams travelled together. The vanguard reached Framheim at 4pm, with Bjarland and Stubberud arriving at 6 and Hassel at 6.30, but then nothing. Out on the barrier, Johansen waited two hours for the frostbite-hobbled Prestrud to catch him up, and then nursed the injured man homeward on his sledge. Left on their own with no tent and no cooker, they had no choice but to press on. Trying to find the hut in failing light and thickening blown snow, the pair only survived because they heard a dog bark and homed in on the noise. Only Lundstrom stirred from slumber at their arrival at half past midnight, sorting out hot food and drinks to revive the exhausted and badly shaken pair. At breakfast the following morning, responding to a taunt from Amundsen about their late arrival, Johansen accused Amundsen of panic in the face of adverse conditions and poor leadership in allowing the sledges to become separated. Johansen's Arctic experience, the one threat to Amundsen's absolute authority in all aspects of the expedition, came to the fore in a form of brinkmanship over the buckwheat cakes. Into the dead silence caused by Johansen's outburst, Amundsen tried to excuse his actions the previous day by stating that Hansen was suffering frostbite and required urgent shelter and attention. Given the other frostbite sufferers sitting around the breakfast table, this gambit fell a bit flat, and tension prevailed in the subsequent days, Amundsen ignoring Johansen unless absolutely necessary. Amundsen took aside each man in turn, other than Johansen, talking them around to his side, even Prestrud, who came nearest to being abandoned to die on the barrier by Amundsen's dash back to Framheim. At the conclusion of these interviews, 
Amundsen demanded a pledge of loyalty from each man. Johansson was marginalised. Amundsen's authority was reasserted. This loyalty oath caper echoes the standing orders posted by Borkrevink and the orchestrated marginalisation of a potential source of mutinous ill-will will resonate even louder when we get to discussing Richard Evelyn Bird. If you have to sit down one-on-one with your team and get them to swear an oath to support you, I figure you're doing leadership wrong. Amundsen split the team. Johansson, Prestrud and Stubberud would head east to examine King Edward VII land, while Amundsen, Bjarland, Fisting, Hussel and Hansen took four sledges south. Johansson protested this alteration until Amundsen, still his employer, issued written orders sealing the deal and furthering Johansson's official fall from grace by placing the less experienced Prestrud in charge of the Eastern Party. This might have been avoided if Johansson had contained his anger sufficient to broach his beef over the return to Framheim with Amundsen privately, but his open outburst escalated an already simmering disquiet between the two men. It also might have been avoided if Amundsen had kept his party together on the return and ensured the safety of all, as any leader would need to do if they wanted me to follow them a second time, and the simmering resentment between them also may not have come to such a dramatic head had Amundsen not been a smug and goading asshole over breakfast. But these things did happen, and Amundsen felt he couldn't afford to have Johansson as part of the polar party, wherein even the smallest intrigue against his leadership could jeopardise their goal and their safety. The Amundsen story was recorded in a single session and continues immediately from where I leave off here in episode 45.